This time, I'd like to welcome back a longtime friend of our congregation, Nate Sims. We're grateful to have you here this morning to preach to us. So, Brother Nate, bless us with God's word this morning. All right, good morning, everybody. Tom Merritt, because he's got a baseball game to go to, so I'm going to preach a long sermon. <laughs> Sorry, Tom. But uh, no, it's, it's really good to be here. I'm excited to be back with you, and I'll be here next week. And so, full disclaimer, I'm not going to be able to get to John 3.16 and down today. This, this sermon is just a little too meaty. I couldn't quite get there. So next week, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll work on that part of it. But I'm excited to, to get through this encounter with Jesus and Nicodemus. We're going to learn three things this morning. I don't, I'm not going to have them up here for you, so if you have notes, if that's your thing, take the notes ready. So the first thing we're going to learn this morning is that Jesus draws curiosity. The second thing we're going to learn is that Jesus communicates relevantly. And the third thing we're going to learn is that Jesus speaks boldly. All right, so Jesus draws curiosity. So Nicodemus heads into the night to go find Jesus. Now, what is this all about? Why is he going into the night? See, he's trying to conceal his identity because of the position of Nicodemus. Nicodemus is in the Sanhedrin. He's at the top of the religious leadership. And so he's got wealth. He's got power. He's got influence. He has everything he needs. Right? He's a moral person. He knows his Bible better than any one of us in this room could ever. They memorized books and books of the Bible. They could repeat it by memory. So Nicodemus, very high on the social scale. And so he's trying to conceal his identity because he's going into Jesus, right? And so, like, you know, if you go out in the nighttime right now, there's all kinds of lights. You go into the city, you're exposed. It doesn't matter how dark it is. Back in the ancient days, you would have the the moon and the stars, and so it's not really too bright. And so he was curious about Jesus. He's going in to have a discussion. He doesn't want to be known. Oh, is it not working? Yeah. All right. I'll use the old mic. Hello. Do I have to do something here? Hello. 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 <clears throat> All right. Now you can hear me. All right. Where was I? Okay, so Nicodemus going at nighttime into the house, right? Going to, to, to find Jesus, right? And what's really interesting is that it's not just Nicodemus as curious. Um, he's being sent by other people. Notice it says, he says, uh, Rabbi, we know that uh, we know, right? So it's not just Nicodemus who's curious. There's probably other Pharisees, other people that are curious about Jesus. But what's really fascinating is that Nicodemus calls Jesus, Rabbi. Why would he do that? Now, let me just tell you. Jesus was young. He was in his early 30s, right? Nicodemus is an old man, okay? So, you know, back then, you know, you're old when you get to the Sanhedrin because you have so much wisdom and power and knowledge. So he has all of everything, right? And so he goes down to Jesus, who's this young guy. Jesus has no professional training. He didn't go to college. He's not the Harvard grad like Nicodemus. He's a nobody, so it's really strange that he would do that, but it's interesting, right? It shows you the respect. Think about it this way. Imagine yourself going to Harvard, and you have this professor who has all kinds of decorations. He is just a brilliant person. He's written books. He's got all, all the academic uh, you know, experience behind him. And he goes to a dorm room to hang out with a college kid by nighttime, right? And he goes, uh, listen, hey, professor, right? And he talks to a student and addresses him as professor, it just shows you how incredibly intriguing Jesus is. 
See, Jesus made all kinds of claims, right? But they had to do something with him. So let me ask this question. Why was Nicodemus so curious about Jesus? Why were the other people so curious about him? Well, he says it right here in the text. We know, we know that you're a teacher from God, and no one can do these signs unless God is with him. There's two reasons he gives. Your teaching is incredible, is radical, right? But also it's because you do miracles, right? I mean, you can say whatever you want, but if you don't back them up with miracles, right? You know, I mean, Jesus could have said whatever he wanted to and claimed whatever he wanted to, and they could have easily dismissed him. But the fact that he had miracles is what really made them pay attention as well. And so let me just give you a little snippet of this, all right? So if you have the Sermon on the Mount, right, and just let's just talk a little bit about his teaching. Jesus basically teaches that God looks at your heart, right? He says, um, you know, if you lust, um, you've committed adultery. If you have sexual thoughts about somebody, you have committed adultery. Oh, if you hate your brother, you're a murderer, right? So what, what he's saying is that God looks at your heart. See, the Pharisees, they would pray on the street corners. They would do all the lip service, but their heart would be completely far from God. They're trying to impress other people. Jesus taught, his teaching was to pierce the heart. No, God looks on your heart. He knows what you are on the inside, right? What else did he teach? Well, he also forgave people, right? He, he goes, your sins are forgiven. Now, what that is is an indirect claim to be God because only God really can forgive sins, right? So that's an incredible thing to, to be saying, right? In John chapter 8, you're going to see Jesus says, I am that I am. I am before Abraham. They're asking him, Jesus, where did you come from? He goes, oh, before Abraham was, I am. Which in Exodus chapter 3, Moses is asking God, hey, what's your name? Who should I tell Pharaoh you are? God says, tell him that I am sent you. I am that I am. So Jesus directly correlates himself with the personal name of who he says, God. <laughs> and that's why they picked up stones to throw at him. Jesus went into the temple, overthrew the tables, just knocked them over because what are they doing? They're using the church. God's house is a marketplace. It was interfering with worship. Very interesting. So it's not just what he taught, though, right? But it's also the miracles, right? I mean, he healed the lepers. He healed the blind. He healed the lame. He was doing some incredible miracles, turning water into wine in John chapter 2. That's incredible. So Jesus is teaching, and he's so miraculous in what he does. Nicodemus is curious. we got to figure out what is going on with this guy. Let me ask you a question. Why do Americans seem to be completely disinterested in Jesus? I mean, we live in this culture. This is not a Christian nation. People aren't actively looking for Jesus, and they're not saying, okay, we got to figure out Jesus. we got to be curious about who he is. Why? Let me give you three reasons. Now, there's many reasons, okay? So this is not, exclu this is not like fully comprehensive. Okay, I'm going to give you three big reasons why people are disinterested in Jesus in today's society, okay? The first one is this. Christians easily get put in categories and in molds, okay? Let me tell you. Um, oh, you're a Christian? Oh, you're anti-science. Oh, you're a Christian? You're a hypocrite. Oh, you're a Christian? Um, yeah, you're just, you just don't believe in vaccines or anything. You know what I mean? Like, they get all, like, they like to put you in these little categories of things. Oh, geez, you know, you guys are hypocrites. You guys are judgmental. Anti-intellectual. 
And there's one particular mold that Christians are into, and this, this mold is not going to go away anytime soon. And is that they like to put you in a political mold. Right? If you talk about being a Christian, they want to know your politics. And Christians easily kind of fit into this, right? We kind of easily get baited into political things, political ideas, right? And so that's what the enemy wants. The enemy wants you to say, oh, yeah, let me just put my politics out there first. Let's put it this way. If, you know, Tim Keller's a great guy. He talks about two things, okay? If you go up to somebody and say, man, I, I really care about and I'm anti-racist, somebody would paint you as a liberal. If you go up to somebody and say, hey, like, I believe in, in two genders. I believe in, um, you know, a, a, a conservative sexual ethic, right? Marriage is between men and women. Don't have sex before marriage. Oh, and I also believe in the sanctity of life. I don't believe in abortion is, is what God wants you to do. That God sees life as beautiful. They would paint you as a conservative, God cares about all those things, right? And so, my dear friends, as Christians, if you put your political foot forward, if, if, if this is, you know, outside the church, and we're, in a, we're like in a, you know, you're in the marketplace, right? Or you're, you're at Jesse's Barbecue eating some, you know, eating some good food, and you stand up, and you say, I'm a conservative, I, I'm a, uh, I am absolutely conservative. What's going to happen in that category? You're going to lose about half of them. They're going to put you in a category. They're going to say, I'm going to dismiss you. Oh, you Jesus follower, of course you are. And they're going to put you in a category, and they're never going to want to have a conversation with you because you're seen as the enemy. And the same goes if you're a liberal. The conservatives will look at you that way as well. And so if you, if you follow into a mold, people are going to dismiss you. And unfortunately, people see... Christians as Jesus. They, they assimilate both of them together. They put them together. My dear friends, if we want to be curious people, we can ask them questions. We can talk about life. We can talk about things. We can have these opinions, but let's not put your political foot forward first because you're going to lose people. You're not going to be able to communicate Jesus in a relevant way. Right? Okay, enough on that point. How about another one? How about just talking about Jesus, right? So Nicodemus can't be curious about Jesus unless he knows about Jesus, right? Well, statistically speaking, Christians, a growing number of Christians don't want to talk about Jesus in our society, okay? That's according to Barna Research. In fact, people my age believe it's actually wrong to share your faith with other people. Morally wrong to share your faith. In the cultural Kool-Aid, believe Why is that? Well, because we've been drinking the cultural Kool-Aid, believe it or not. See, culture assigns people roles. They tell you how to live life. And so what our culture is so good at doing is saying this. Don't talk about Jesus. You can believe whatever you want. You can believe any kind of religious belief that you want. Just don't tell people about it. You do you, right? You can believe you. Just don't impress. Don't impress other people with your belief systems. Keep your beliefs private. Don't bring it out into the public square. Now, that's an extremely hypocritical statement. If somebody ever says that to you, you have every right. I mean, don't call them a hypocrite right out. You know, don't just be like, oh, you hypocrite. But listen, this is what they're actually telling you to do. I want you to keep your spiritual views private. Oh, um, which means you need to adopt my view of spirituality 
that it needs to be private. So what they're basically telling you is, I have a superior view of spirituality. It's not for other people. So it's like, well, how can you possibly say that? Because you're literally telling me to adopt your view of spirituality, right? But it works, because we don't want to be offensive. We don't want to hurt people's feelings, right? Like, you know, we care about that kind of thing. And so we kind of buy into that kind of mode of thinking. But Jesus talks about this, right, in the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples. He gives us a mission, right? So Christians aren't really talking about Jesus as much as we probably should be in this culture. But it's not just that. Like, it's, and this is kind of the third reason here. It's kind of attached to that. Is like, I can talk about Jesus all day long. But if it's not relevant, who cares? Right? I'm outside. Jesus, with, with like a, a marker right on my forehead, run around outside, sing songs, and tell, believe in Jesus, believe in Jesus. Here, Jesus, I'm bringing awareness to his name. But if it's not relevant to their story, if it doesn't make sense to people, they're going to dismiss you. Absolutely dismiss you. There's a story. Okay, so there was uh, a few months ago, I do an outreach called Table Talk, where I get Christians to invite non-Christians to the table, and we're going to talk about life, right? We're going to talk about life topics like justice, love, compassion, like whatever human experience you can think of, depression, anxiety. We're going to go ahead, we're going to talk about that. All views are welcome to the table. Now, my friend Matt, he was talking about something. He's a Christian guy. He's a missionary just like me, right? And on an offhanded comment, he goes, when I was 18 years old, Jesus radically changed my life. Completely turned my life upside down. And then he, he's like, but here's the thing, guys. I don't have enough time to talk about it. And then he continued to talk about something else. I had about five non-believers out, agnostics, atheists. And they stopped him and said, whoa, 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 Matt, we want to hear about Jesus. Can you tell us about that story? I'm really interested in hearing. We don't care how long it takes. They were begging him at the table to share Jesus with him. You know why? It sparked curiosity. How did Jesus really change your life? Because everybody's looking for something to change their life, right? And so if Jesus really does change somebody's life, they want to hear about it in a meaningful way. The gospel connects to every area of life. It is relevant to absolutely everything. Identity, like, and I already like, mentioned a few of them, like depression, anxiety. Jesus has experienced all of life. He is completely represented as human. He knows how, what we've all been through, and you can see it in the scripture, the life of Jesus, and he connects to everything through the gospel, right? So if we can take the gospel and show how he's relevant to us, man, they want to hear about it. Oh, how about the gospel to your heart, like, they want to know the, the relevancy to Jesus in their personal life. So if we just talk about Jesus like a formula, like a Harry Potter spell, and just randomly just say it and hope something works, it's not really relevant. They don't really know what it's about. As a chaplain, I talk to all kinds of people who proclaim to be Christians. I say, what does it mean to be a Christian? Oh, Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. What does that mean? I don't know. just kind of heard it growing up in church. So, the gospel means absolutely everything, and we should be able to communicate not only Jesus' name, but his relevance to their life, connect the relevance to their story. Okay. Now, be second point. Because Jesus is relevant. 
He communicates relevantly. What does he say here? Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Okay, kingdom of God only mentioned one time in the book of John, okay, which is basically eternal life, okay? And, and, and what he does here, he communicates relevantly to Nicodemus. See, when Jesus says this, Nicodemus loses his mind here, okay? He's very reserved in this passage, but he loses his mind because Jesus is speaking directly to his heart, and that's what Jesus does. Look at the woman at the well. What does Jesus use as a metaphor for eternal life? Living water. Jesus uses another metaphor for eternal life, which is light. Jesus uses, I am the bread of life. Jesus uses metaphors to explain eternal life. And he knows that Nicodemus thinks that he's going to have eternal life, but he goes, well, wait a minute, you actually need to be born again. And Nicodemus, right, he speaks right to Nicodemus's heart. He's like, how is this even possible? So let's just take a look at this image of being again for a second, all right? Now, this is really important because Jesus intentionally uses this image for him. So Jesus means, right, by being born again, that you're going to be relationally alive with God forever, right? But what is Nicodemus's question? Right? He goes, well, I'm an old man. He told me I gotta go, be- I gotta go between, like, legs again? I-, I gotta get born again? Like, that's crazy. That's insane. And so he does not like that idea very much. And Jesus talks about it. He's like, well, wait a minute. Okay. Okay. From the flesh comes flesh. From the spirit comes spirit. So he says, okay, people have sex. They have babies. If you want to have life from God, it has to come from above. It has to come from heaven. God has to impart his spirit onto you. You have to be born again spiritually. Now, think about it for a second. How much... How much um, consultation does your children give you about being born? Do they, do they like, you know, they have like no, kids are born. It's not their decision, right? The parents do, right? Or however, the external circumstances dictates how that child is being born into it. They have no say into it. And so being born again means it's out of your control. You have no control in the process of being born again, right? And, and Jesus talks about the wind blowing wherever it is. God will give his spirit to all kinds of people, people that you wouldn't expect, right? But it's out of your control. But also, this image of being born again means that you contribute nothing. Okay? My kids, you know, they did nothing. My, My wife did everything, right? My wife did the work. My wife suffered. Yeah, I'm just there watching it happen. You know, I'm kind of like, man, this is like horrible. Like she's really, like she's screaming. She's really screaming, but she, she kept it together, right? And I can't really connect with that. All I right. connect with is being like, man, that must be really painful. This is terrible, but I'm really excited, right? She's like, I just want to get the baby out of me, right? You know, so it's like, it's a very painful process. There's a lot of suffering involved. She's doing a lot of the work, the pushing, everything. She had to carry that baby for nine months. It's a lot of work and pain. Think about Nicodemus. He's a moral person. He's a good man. He did all, everything right. He has an impeccable record. He's, almost, he's ready to die, and he's ready to go to eternal life. And Jesus says, no, you need to be born again. You need to start over. Nothing that you have ever done counts for you to have eternal life. I mean... That's pretty 
oh, man, that's painful. That's offensive. That hurts. That means all of his, everything he's ever done means nothing. What that also means is Nicodemus is literally spiritually the same as an atheist. I want you to think about the most annoying person in the world right now. I want you to think about the worst of the worst. Somebody that you completely, like, everybody's got politics in them. So think about the worst politician, the worst person in the entire world. Nicodemus and that person are on the same exact plane. In fact, all of us are. We are all on ground zero in God's eyes. <laughs> we think we could bring something to God. He goes, uh-uh. You can bring nothing. To be born again is to start over. And that is just revolutionary. That just, you notice, if you look at this passage, Nicodemus gets quieter and quieter and quieter. When Jesus talks to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, she's, I mean, the conversation just gets more and more and more. To think about, Jesus has given him something to think about. Think about this this metaphor here, and it's, it's wrecking Nicodemus, right? What does he say in verse 9? How can these things be? So, Jesus speaks relevantly to his life. He, he speaks exactly what he needs to about being born again. He's communicating the idea. Nicodemus, you think you have it all together, but you don't. Nicodemus needed to hear that because guess what? He was probably puffed up with a lot of pride. I know exactly how to live life. I know exactly what I'm doing. I have a lot of knowledge. I have a lot of money. And Jesus says, I don't care. That's not going to buy you a relationship with God. So the question becomes like, well, how do you have a relationship with God? And I'm going to get there in a minute. But to my third point, Jesus speaks boldly. Now, he goes, he goes to him, right? Nicodemus says, well, how can these things be, right? And he goes, he goes you know, <laughs> I love Jesus, man. He just... He goes, you call yourself a teacher of Israel? Like, as if Jesus didn't offend Nicodemus enough. As if Jesus wasn't bold enough. Jesus says, you call yourself a teacher? All right, think about your profession. If you're like a nurse or something, or you're a professor, teacher, whatever you're really, really, really good at. Imagine Jesus saying, do you really? really? You, you think you're a teacher and you don't even know the basics? That would be like really offensive, right? I was a Starbucks barista one time, and for five years, if somebody came up to me and said, you have no idea how to make a drink, that would be very offensive to me, because I was like, well, I do, right? And so, so Jesus comes right up to him and speaks boldly. And, and this is the basics of it, right? This is what Jesus says. Um, you don't know your scripture. Let me, let me tell you about the scriptures that you don't know, which he actually does know, but you know, Nicodemus doesn't seem to understand. Jesus says, I'm sorry, there's a prophecy in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from your uncleanliness. And from all of your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. What he's saying is the Old Testament has been prophesying that God's going to put his spirit in people. I'm going to give you a new covenant. I'm going to give you new life. And Nicodemus, whoop, right over his head, wasn't teaching people to anticipate 
this new covenant that is supposed to come. Jesus says, I'm that one, right? You need to be born again. God's going to put a spirit within you. And then he goes down, and then he talks about Numbers 21. We talk about the snake being lifted up in all this situation. So what, what happened? So in Numbers 21, Israelites were disobeying God, and what ended up happening was these serpents came up, and they started to bite them, just, you know, inflicting all kinds of venom into their bodies that would kill them. And so how did Moses interfere with them or, you know, say, hey, like God, like, like, you know, we're dying here. And God says, okay, I want you to put a bronze snake on a pole and just tell them to look at the snake. If they just look at that snake, they will be healed. They will be cured. They will have life. How do you become born again? Well, let me tell you, if you're stuck with poison in your body, which is your sin, You need to know, you have to identify, yeah, I have a problem here, and what was the solution? Just to simply look up at the bronze snake, which would be very offensive to Jewish people to look at the snake, because the snake is deceptive. The snake is sin from Genesis chapter 3, right? Genesis chapter 2, right? So that was an ugly image for a Jewish person to look at. They had to own their sin. They had to look to the snake. They had to own their life and say, I'm not right. And all they had to do was simply trust and look. They didn't have to do anything. They had to go and just listen. That's it. How do you become born again? You look at Jesus being lifted up on the cross. You need to see your sin. You need to see that you're not right with God. And all you have to do is look to him. See, Nicodemus, he understood that. When he, at the very end of the story, he's only mentioned two more times, Right? And he gets bolder and bolder to defend Jesus. But at the very end, he comes out in the daylight, he provides spices, and he's there when Jesus is, is, is dead. And he represents with Jesus. I believe he came to Christ. I believe when he saw Jesus lifted up on the cross, Nicodemus remembered this conversation of him saying, look, look to the pole, right? Look to the Son of Man as me lifted up. And he was having that image of those Israelites coming to life by simply trusting and believing, by looking at that bronze snake. What I love about all this is that human beings, we're all messed up people. There's nobody. No Christian should ever say, I have it all together. This should completely humble all of us to realize we're all screwed up people, but yet God loves us through it. He loves us through it all. No matter what you've done, you say, it doesn't matter if you've lived a horrible life. It doesn't matter if you have destroyed all these relationships behind you. Because God still sees you and he still calls you to look at him for forgiveness. 100%. Doesn't matter if you're Nicodemus, doesn't matter if you're the most spiritually broken person. The woman at the well had a horrible reputation. She had five husbands, right? And the one you're with is not one now. She was morally bankrupt. And yet, God comes to her, right? Jesus comes to her and says, oh, you want living water? I will satisfy Everything that those men could never satisfy. See, we're always looking for satisfaction. Jesus says, I am, I am your satisfaction. It's like, man, you can walk out today knowing that God looks at you and he loves you. You have faith in Jesus, you trust in his son, you are born again, that means you are his child forever. Nothing can take that away. You are made new and God is completely happy with you because of what Jesus Christ did. See, when God sees you, when the Father sees you, he sees Jesus. 
And that should just melt your heart and just give you a rest, give you a peace. You don't have to worry. You can energetically share your faith with people now because you're so excited that the God of the universe finds value in you just because he loves you. Isn't that great? It's not performance-based. Everything in life is performance-based, but with God, he goes, nope, it's Jesus' performance that matters. To be born again means to have new life. It's not about achieving new life, it's about receiving new life. That's all it is. So be encouraged. This week, walk out with, with just... Just relax and sing praises to the one who has completely changed your life. Look to Jesus because he was lifted up on the cross for you. And it's by simple faith and trust that you can have his eternal life with him. That's beautiful news, isn't it? All right, let's pray. God, we love you. We're thankful for this time. We're thankful for this little story here, just a little interaction. Nicodemus... And you. And it teaches us so much. It teaches us that you radically love us in ways that we have a hard time comprehending sometimes. And we have to remind ourselves of your truth, of your word. But we're thankful that you offer us eternal life based off of the works of Jesus Christ. Thank you for, for the opportunity to be born again. But I just love you so much. And I pray for everyone in here. I pray for somebody who might be considering you, Jesus that they would talk more, that they would be interested, that they would be curious to say, hey, I want to know more about what it looks like to be a Christian. And if we are a Christian, may we be encouraged to know and trust in the work that you have done for us. Help us to take that beautiful grace that you've given us and help work that out of our lives into pouring into other people, into serving others and proclaiming your name. Amen.